Today's sermon topic is a rebellion and conspiracy. While we are unfortunately familiar with the conspiracy, especially conspiracy theory in America nowadays, most Americans are fortunately unfamiliar with the rebellions. When was the last time you heard about the political rebellion or military coup in America? Now, what rebellion do you know in American history? Other than the American Revolutionary War, which was in fact, in fact a rebellion against the British monarch, we didn't have any major rebellion in our history. And let me tell you that we shouldn't take that for granted. As somebody who lived in South America, I know military coups and rebellions are very common in our sister continent in many parts of the world. So United States of America is the longest running democratic country in the world. And the others call it American exceptionalism. When a French uh, writer and a political observer named uh, Alexis de Tocqueville toured America in 1831, he said, American idea of a nationality was uh, different from other nations because it is based less on common history or ethnicity than on common beliefs, common beliefs. And he asserted that American common beliefs for justice and liberty and pursuit of happiness are good and unique. unique. And then at about the same time, two English ministers, Andrew you know, Reed and James Madison, who visited America, in 1830, they also said this, America is great because America is good. But if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Today, we will study the worst, I mean, first and the worst rebellion in the Bible and in the history of Israel. I claim it to be the worst because a conspirator was not a political foe or even rebel, but it was a family member, a son. So today we're going to study rebellion of Absalom. We've been studying the series on David, and today we come to one of the, I mean, the worst rebellion story in the Bible in multiple ways. So let's read our text together, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1 to 12. Let's read it responsibly. I'll read first. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for his decision. Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And the Absalom would add, If only I were appointed a judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. 
So he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living in Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of a trumpet, then say, Absalom is a king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as a guest and went quiet innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ephihophel, the Gilonite, David's counsel to come from Gilah, his hometown. So the conspiracy gained strength. Absalom's following kept on increasing. Today in this story, we see a wrong gatekeeper who wanted to steal the throne of a legitimate king, let alone his own father. Absalom was not just a rebellious son. He is a sneaky rebel. You know, last week we saw Absalom's inner character, right? Today, we will study the deeper, sinister you know, uh, uh, nature of his uh, dark side. In this story, I see also uncanny resemblance, uncanny similarity between Absalom and Satan. Satan, the original rebel against God, and the father of all bad rebels. Through today's story, I pray that we will be sharp, will be aware about the enemy of God and our world, Satan, because he still cajoles us to join the evil rebellion, rebellion against God. So as we go through this uh, uh, you know, resemblance between Absalom and the Satan, let us examine our heart and let us really, you know, become more aware and uh, more careful about following Christ. First, truth of a rebellion, that is, is abnormal. Abnormal. By abnormal, I mean it was unnecessary and irrational. Absalom was the third son of King David. And many biblical scholars think that he was the oldest surviving son by now. And thus, a de facto crown prince, the firstborn, the wicked Amnon, was killed by Absalom, you know, to the, for the rape of his half-sister, Tamar. And second son was Kileb. He was a son of Abigail. But he was mentioned only once and never appeared in the Bible, and many assumed that he's dead, or definitely non-contender. And the last time, in chapter 14, we saw Absalom receive the full pardon and restoration from David. Do you guys remember the kiss? They kissed? And uh, today's chapter starts with uh, verse 1, in the course of time. In Hebrew text, or literally, after this. After this means, now that Absalom was officially publicly recognized as a David's son, so all he had to do was to enjoy his princely life of luxury and comfort and succeed his father upon his death. Why did he rush to become a king while 
there was any mention of a threat or competition. Today's rebellion of Absalom did not make sense at all. It is abnormal and absurd. Likewise, Satan's rebellion against God is also abnormal and absurd. According to Isaiah chapter 14, Satan was an angel, so used to be in heaven. And then he became a narcissistic megalomaniac who thought himself to be better than God. So if you look at the Isaiah 14, verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of dawn, you've been cast down to the earth, you once lay low the nations. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to the heavens, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost height of a Mount Zephon. Satan is a fallen angel, and he fell from heaven because of his pride. G.K. Chesterton once said that Satan fell from God's grace because he was too self-important, too heavy. Whereas angels hover around God because angels, good angels, they are light. They are light. They are not heavy. You know, in order to fly, you have to be light. You know, if you are heavy, you cannot fly high. And the angels... They are light because they know their beauty came from God, not from themselves. So they don't have self-importance. They have a humility. You know, people with a humility, they get close to God because God, most, God is most high. So those of you cannot laugh at yourself, take yourself too seriously, watch out. You might not fly, but fall down. Now, Rebellion against God is definitely absurd and abnormal. And one commentator said, we might say Absalom's greatest sin is actually impatience. Absalom seemed to stand the nearest to the throne, but his sin was that he saw it during the father's lifetime, and he tried to dethrone him in order to sit in his, uh, you know, uh, 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 in his stead. So in this sense, Absalom was very much like a prodigal son in the Luke chapter 15, who prematurely asked his father for his share of inheritance. So sin is, a, sin is a, both irrational and intentional at the same time. Do you know that? Sin is irrational and intentional at the same time. Sin is irrationally intentional and intentionally irrational. You know, truly, the key letter of a sin is a middle letter, the, the, the I, I, you know, you know, S-I-N, sin, the middle letter I. When I matters more than anything else or anyone else, this is when we make absurd, you know, abnormal mistake. And sin is a selfish and stupid because it undoes oneself unnecessarily. So somebody say, evil is a much ado about nothing. Second similarity between Absalom and uh, uh, Satan is that they are both attractive and aggressive. First, attractive. You know, last time in the Second Samuel chapter 14, especially verse 25, we saw Absalom was best-looking man in, Bible, in the Bible. 
from head to toe, he was impeccably sexy and attractive. Today, he made his appearance more impressive with his royal entourage. So if you look at the verse 1, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses with a 50 men run ahead of him. This description of entourage you know, actually describes the kings in other Bible uh, passages. So Absalom was uh, maximizing his visual awesomeness today. So has been Satan. Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of a light. According to Paul, Satan is a master of disguise, and this dark angel, he always presents himself as an angel of a light. You know, I think that's the Satan's you know, power. He knows how shallow our human, you know, uh, human attraction is. So he knows how to use our, you know, how to appeal to our shallow aesthetics. And Paul repeats the same warning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. The coming of a lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders to serve the lie. Signs and wonders that serve the lie. You know, Satan has a limited power, but he knows how to make it look bigger than it is. He's a master of exaggeration and the embellishment. In this sense, you know, world, our world, they package the sin to be beautiful, to be appealing, and to be more popular than ever. Now, Absalom and Satan, they have another deadly trait here, along with their, you know, attractiveness. That's that they are not only attractive, they are aggressive. Look at the verse 2. Absalom got up early, stand by the side of a road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for decision, by the way, back then, king was more like a supreme court, so they brought the you know, important case to the king. Absalom would call out to them, what town are you from? And he would answer, your servant is one of the tribes of Israel. Absalom got up early in the morning to prepare his entourage and to set up his gatekeeping job, I mean shop. And when he met those Israelites who came to see king, he asked them where they are from. Not because he actually interested in their, you know, them, but what? He was secretly organizing the, what is it, his own national network of a slip, you know, whatever, conspirators. And do you know how long he did every morning? Look at the verse 7. At the end of four years, four years, he did it for four years. By the way, why early in the morning? This was kind of a covert operation. I don't think Absalom didn't stay at the gate all day because that was too obvious and it would make him suspicious. He... Well, he was far more clever than that. And in fact, this was the second time he patiently plotted his conspiracy. Do you remember first time, you know, he did it? For two years, he didn't say anything about 
you know, Amnon until he killed him. Absalom was aggressive, patient, diligent, dedicated to his cause and conspiracy. So is a Satan. Look at the first Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter said, Be alert and sober mind, because your enemy, the devil, prowls like prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter described the devil as a lion on hunt. Have you seen a hungry lion lazy? You know, hungry lion or prowling means that being ready to jump on and attack and, you know, and kill. There's a very interesting sermon uh, preached in 1548 by a great English Anglican pastor named uh, Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was uh, one of the martyrs. He was killed by the Bloody Mary, but anyway. And uh, this sermon was interesting because the title of the sermon was the most diligent uh, preacher in England, most diligent preacher in England. And uh, he preached about this topic because of many clergymen, including bishops, they were more into pleasures and the church business for perks and careers rather than calling for God to serve people. So this is, uh, you know, his sermon and the excerpt of his sermon. So let me read quickly. Now I would ask a strange question to you. Who is the most diligent bishop and prolet in all England that passes all the rest in doing his office? I can tell you. I know him very well. There is a one that passes all the others, and the more diligent prolet and the preacher in England. It is the devil. He is the most diligent preacher of all others. He is never out of his diocese. He is never from his cure. Ye shall never find him unoccupied. He is ever in his parish. He keeps a residency at all times. Ye shall never find him out of the way. Call for him when you will. He is ever at home. That means he will, call, he will respond. And the most diligent preacher in all realm. He is ever at his floor. Yet ye shall never find him idle. Oh, that our prelate would be as diligent to sow the corn of a good doctrine as a Satan is to sow cockles and donald. Therefore, ye unpreaching prolet, learn of the devil. To be diligent in doing your office, learn of the devil. If you will not learn from God or a good man, for shame, learn of the devil. Latimer was a right. Evil never sleeps, and Satan is diligent. By the way, do you know Satan is a diligent Bible student? You know, we saw him quoting the scripture when he, emptied, he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He knows scripture better than average Christians. This is why believing Bible as a word of God is not enough. You need to know what it means. This is why for us, we emphasize the Good Shepherd College. We tell people to take a Cornerstone Bible study, Livingstone Bible study, John Disciples 1 and 2, all these classes. Satan knows his time is short, his days are numbered. So he seeks to oppose and attack any work of God on the earth. You know what that means? Our enemy knows our unsafe family and friends to be VIP more than we. He knows 
how valuable our unsaved families and friends are to God. We are not the only one who recognize their importance to God. Satan knows. So you know what? We cannot be lazy. Seriously, we cannot be lazy. Keep on fire, keep on your prayer fire. Third similarity of Absalom and Satan comes from their accusation. Look at the verse uh, uh, 3. Absalom would say to the, whatever the Israelite, look, your claims are valid and proper, literally good and righteous. There is a, no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would say, but if only I would be appointed a judge in the land, then everybody who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see they will receive justice. Absalom unilaterally affirmed everyone regardless of their cases then accused the king for not giving them a due justice. And he said because the king didn't make himself available for them, while Absalom himself could. Here I see the same old accusation of Satan to God's people. You know, our enemy used the same tactic. He tells us, poor you, your struggle makes total sense. But where is God? God doesn't do anything for you. You know, God can help you, but he doesn't. God says a love, but where is he? Where is his love? Why does he leave you alone in your struggle? He doesn't really love you. You know, this is a Satan's long-standing strategy to divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Satan isolates us individually and suffocates us separately from our God and our community, and then eliminate us one by one. This divide and conquer, that's a Satan's tactic. He blocks our hearts to see God and blinds us with utter forsakenness. So when you hear an inner voice, that where is my house church family? Where, how come nobody calls me? Why is my shepherd not caring for me? When you hear those kind of negative, you know, inner voice, don't just believe your voice. And then, you know, stay at home. You better show up in the house church and tell people. How come nobody called me? You know, share your honest feeling. You know, when Satan tells us that God is distant and indifferent to us, we better remember the name of our God in the Bible is Emmanuel, God with us. To be with us, he even became one of us. He incarnated, and much more, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us and help us to cry, Abba, Father. How dare Satan call God is a, you know, distant and indifferent. God is never distant and indifferent. He's Emmanuel. So those of you new at Forest, uh, checking out Forest, we want you to know that we named our church Forest because I'm from California, and I like the redwood forest. And the redwood forest, it grows, you know, redwood forest is a tall trees, you know, sequo, you know, whatever. It's a gigantic trees, but uh, the root actually is not deep. It, go, it grows uh, horizontally, and they interlock, and that's how they stand together. So forest vision is a we kind of weave our lock together, I mean root together and stand together. So we are not a perfect church at all. We are not a great community. 
slip of tongue, confession, God forgive. You know, some people say I'm a good preacher. I guess you haven't heard good preacher. You know, but I can tell you one thing: we try to do. We want to grow together. That means we want to suffer together. We want to weep together. We want to rejoice together. Together is our key word. That's why we call our church forest. Let me move on to quickly to the last aspect of Absalom, you know, uh, similarity between Absalom and uh, Satan. This last similarity is the worst aspect of uh, Absalom's rebellion. That is, he used the worship of God as a pretext. Look at the verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron. Why? To fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living in Geshur in Aram in exile, I made a vow. They flowed, takes me back to Jerusalem. I worship the Lord in Hebron. Absalom used the religion for rebellion. And that's why I call it his ultimate angler. Who knows what angler is? There is a fisherman, there is an angler. Do you know the difference? Fisherman is anybody can catch fish with whatever method, you know. Uh, fishermen is basically what golfers call duffers. You know duffers? People who go out and just give it a try. I'm a duffer, you know. And, but uh, Lee Parker, he's a golfer. You know, so that's the difference between angler and the fisherman. Angler, these are the best, you know, description of anglers. They're sports fishing people. They use the best equipment, particular method, rehearsed. They don't even keep the fish unless fish is a trophy size, you know, something to brag about. These are the anglers. They know how to hook. Satan is an angler. Satan is the ultimate angler because Satan loves to use a religion to catch people. Today, in this text, we find that Absalom lied and deceived the 200 leaders from Jerusalem. Verse 11. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently knowing nothing about the whole conspiracy. These 200 innocent guests from you know, Jerusalem, they remind me of the many well-meaning Christians in history who's been deceived and misled by the political leaders who promised false piety and support for the church or Christianity. So that's what today's, you know, I mean, this is a very, very relevant point in our days. So let me ask you, do you know, I'm going to quote a well-known speech. So guess who, who, who spoke this? Do you have that quote? We are people of a different religion. By the way, religion means different Christian denomination here. But we are one. Which faith conquers the other is not the question. Rather, the question is whether Christianity stands or falls. We tolerate no one in our ranks who attacks the ideas of Christianity. In fact, our movement is a Christian. 
We are filled with the desires for Catholics and Protestants to discover one another in the deep distress of our own people. Do you know who said this? Anyone can guess? Anyone? His name is Adolf Hitler. He gave this speech in 1928. Isn't it incredible Hitler called the Nazi movement was a Christian movement? And German people believed, hallelujah! You know, Christian nationalism, the, five years later, he staged a fire in German parliament and burned it, and he used that as an excuse to become chancellor, and the pastor law called the Enabling Act that gave him the you know, head of the executive branch with an even you know, a, a, a legislative you know, power. So he became a basically dictator. And then he gave a one more, uh, 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 he gave another speech. And listen to this speech. By the decision to carry out political, moral, political and moral cleansing our public life, government, Nazi government actually, is creating, securing conditions for really deep inner religious life. The advantages for the individuals which may be derived from the compromises from atheistic organization, by that he's talking about a communist, do not compare in any way with the consequences which are visible in destruction of our common religious and ethical values. The national government sees in both Christian denomination the most important factor for the maintenance of our society. I bet if we were all there in 1933 when he gave this speech, we probably say, hallelujah, we have a great Christian leader. You know, actually, Hitler in his mind camp, he even said that I believe today my conduct is in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. He said his life cause is the will of God. Dictators, or sometimes, you know, whoever, totalitarian kings, they love to use the religion for their advantage. And that's where religion becomes really worst. By the way, you know, we pray for North Korea. But do you know what people wonder about North Korea? North Korea is a very interesting country because they have a dictatorship in three generations with a failed economy. This is an incredible feat, politically speaking. I'm from South America, so I know a lot of dictators. But you know, when economy is bad, usually dictatorship fails. North Korea been maintaining dictatorship for three generations. You know why? North Korean dictatorship is a perversely based on Christian theology. 19, uh, 1996, when I went to a short mission to North Korea, uh, uh, Manchuria, and uh, we visited the border of uh, North Korea and China, and from Chinese you know, side, I saw huge, you know, uh, uh, riding on the mountainside of North Korea, which said, our great leader is with us always. That's the two years after the Kim Il-sung, the first dictator, died. And then they put, uh, you know, they brainwashing their people. He died, but he's not gone. He's always with us. Where, do, where did you hear that our leader is always with us? They basically baptized Emmanuel into North Korean cult. This is a cult nation. 
This is not just any cult nation. It's a Christian cult nation. In our country right now, we have a serious, similar problem. Sandy Hawass is the uh, one time, you know, Time magazine called America's Theologian, and he's actually Texan. He's, from da he's a Dallasite. And uh, Stanley Howard, you know, said this. As a Christians, we are not sufficiently truthful with one another. We fail to acknowledge how some forms of Christianity are idolatrous. When Christianity is identified with the American interest or political party, it needs to be called out for what it is. We are afraid to do that because we think of being a Christian is better than not being one. But bad Christianity is a very bad. We need to become more upfront about it. So, Stanley Hawass called us, call out this idolatrous Christianity in our country. And I disagree in the one statement. That is a bad Christianity is a very bad, no. Bad Christianity is the worst religion of all. Bad Christianity is not just a bad religion. Worst of all, worse than Islam, worse than whatever other religion and cult out there. As we've seen, crusade, as we've seen in South American South, you know, slavery. When Christianity forgot the call of Jesus, and then somehow transmuted with a worldly politics, Christianity become the worst religion. So, we are in the battle of faithful Christian or cultural Christianity. So for us to be emphasized, we want to be, be a biblical church, not a cultural church. We are political, but not, because, not in the right or left. We are political. Our politics is Jesus is our politics. We follow Jesus. We should recognize that what is, a, what is a Congress is doing right now with the investigation of a January 6th insurrection is not just that they are judging this extreme right wing, uh, political right wings and white supremacists, but they are also judging the naive, confused Christians and pastors. Do you know? There are many well-known TV evangelists and some megachurch pastors, including several ones in Dallas, who predicted and preached that Donald Trump would be and should be the next president in our last election because he's a God-ordained Christian candidate. Now we understand why the German Lutherans followed you know, Hitler and ruined the whole world and they create the worst, you know, the uh, worst you know, war of uh, human history in World War II. Some of you heard of Henry Nouwen, the author of Only the Hitler. He said the uh, rebellion, the abuse of a God-given power is one of the great, great weaknesses of a modern church. So let me read the last quote today. When I ask myself the main reason for so many people having left the church during the past decades in France, Germany, Holland, also in Canada and America, the word power easily comes to mind. One of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power, 
political power, military power, economic power, of a moral, spiritual power, even though they continue to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. Every time we see a major crisis in, in the history of a church, such as a great schism of the 11th century, that's when the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox split, and Reformation of the 16th century when the Protestant and Roman Catholic split, or the immense secularization of the 20th century, we always see that a major cause of a rupture is a power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. And now when he said, he concludes that it seems easier to be God than to love God. It's easier to control people than love people. Easier to own life than love life. You know, we need to pray for our country. And we need to know we are in the battle of the soul of not just our country, but our, Christ, our Christian identity now in this country. Seriously, this is a time to pray for the country. Today's story is a sad story. It's an alarming story. And the main thing about today's story is about this, you know, this, this is a really tragic quest for the power. Tragic quest for the power. And that this tragic quest for the power leads to one person in the Bible. Guess what? That's a Jesus Christ. There's a one person in the Bible who really shows us how to use the power in the right way. And uh, if, you, if you turn to Matthew chapter 27, verse 53, this is what Jesus said. This is what happened when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put on my disposal more than 12 re regions of uh, angels? One legion is uh, 6,000 soldiers, so 12 means 72,000. But now how then... Would the scriptures be fulfilled, say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with a sword and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of a prophet might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted and fled him. You know, Jesus is a rightful king. He has all the heavenly power with him at his disposal. But he didn't use his power for himself. He relinquished the power to redeem us. He showed us how to use, control power. How different is Jesus from all other kings in this world? He's a rightful king. But he was treated like a worst rebel. And they treat him like a worst rebel. You know, when I go to heaven, I want to ask one, I have a question, actually. I have a, I have a question to ask a different people. Have. But there is a one question that I'm really dying to ask when I get to heaven. I want to go to Archangel Michael, and I want to ask him, what was going on? When Jesus was being crucified, what were you thinking? What were you doing when Jesus was being crucified? 
you know what Mark, you know, uh, Michael, Angel Michael, Archangel Michael will say? He'll probably say, that was the hardest moment in my eternal uh, in my existence. Me and my friends, all the armies of God, we were ready. We are trembling with anger and, and, and the wrath, and, the and the, we are all looking at Jesus. Had he given us just one knot, we would have come down and wipe out all these despicable sinners. We are watching, we are watching all six hours while he was crucified. But he never called us. Instead, he cried out to God, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That kept us stand down. And we know Jesus loves sinners. Dear brothers and sisters, in this pathetic story, we found a profound revelation of true king who was treated like a rebel because he wants to redeem us. Because he wants to redeem you. Let's pray.